0: I am just thankful that uh, we can be here this morning. Thanks for having us. The world is made up of two types of people, and they usually end up marrying each other. The world is made up of people who remember things and of people who don't. Which one are you? I'm definitely a don't remember things. You can... Attest, my wife knows that very well. I'm a don't remember things. A little while back, I was flipping through social media and um, I saw this guy talking about this thing and I thought it was interesting. The argument he was making was that at our core, we are all good at remembering things. At our core, as a species, we are remarkably good at remembering things, which was a surprise to my wife because she's married to me. And his argument was, we are good at remembering things if we can connect what we're trying to remember was something else. Let me explain what I mean. I need some help with this, okay? Um, if I, this is, this is the feedback part of the morning together. If I go, um, if I go sweet Caroline, you might go, Okay, so some of you guys remember this, right? There's, there's a connection there. It's a neural connection that we've made in our brains between sweet Caroline and the ba ba um, If I go na-na-na-na, hey, hey, hey. Okay, you guys know that too. Now this is the church crowd. So let's try something else. If I go amazing. Okay, you know that too. See, there's these neural pathways that have been formed in our minds between the na na nas and the goodbyes. So I can't remember why I walked into the kitchen, but all I need is like three seconds of an early 1990s hip-hop song, and I can quote all the lyrics to you. I haven't heard that song in 20 years, but they come back just like that. Why? Because of these neural pathways. Now... The ancient Hebrews knew about this as well. They didn't know about neural pathways, but they understood how it works. Now, the ancient Hebrews, if they wanted to teach, for example, on, um, you guys are going into Psalms for the summer, if they wanted to teach on Psalm 23, they wouldn't say, take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 23. First of all, they didn't have chapter or verse references. That is, those are a moderately, uh, modern thing that has come to us. And uh, not only that, they didn't have a super high literacy. They certainly didn't have universal literacy like we have. What they would do instead was they would just quote the first line of the psalm. And because they were amazing at memorizing, do you know that most Jewish people had the entire book of psalms memorized? Do you know that? It's crazy. So they wouldn't say turn to Psalm 23, they would just say, the Lord is my shepherd, and then everyone would instantly have accessible in their minds, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. They would have it all right there because of those neurological pathways, the reason I bring this up is because it's really important to understand this fact when it comes to one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, we're going to be just in, in just two passages this morning. The first one is Matthew chapter 27. So I would love for you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. So at Blue Water, we say turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. Pick one. But uh, Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. As you're turning there, I should say, um, a couple of nights ago, I went to bed with my contact lenses in, and it was a huge mistake because I woke up, and it, it looks like I'm coming. So it looks this morning like I had a rough night on the town last night. That's not it, okay? <laughs> it's not it. I'm a Baptist pastor. Didn't have a rough night in the town, but my eyes look like I do. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. We're going to read through this fairly lengthy um, section of Scripture, but the reason we're doing this is because you need to remember what's going on here because we're then going to jump to one of the Psalms. We're uh, getting a head start into your Psalms of summer, and uh, we're going to pull out some amazing things that we see. So remember what we're reading here. This is the crucifixion account In the book of Matthew. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's going to become important. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God in the same way the chief priests the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him he saved others they said but he can't save himself he's the king of israel let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe him he trusts in god let god rescue him now if he wants him for he said i'm the son of god in the same way those uh, in the same way the rebels were crucified with him also heaped insults on him From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Here's the thing, when I read that passage for my entire life, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thought that what he was doing was telling everyone that was there listening that, that like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. I thought what was going on was Jesus was telling everyone, I'm bearing your sin, and because I am bearing your sin, the Father is turning his back on me. I thought that's what was happening. What I didn't understand was he wasn't doing that at all. What he was doing was the functional equivalent of telling everyone that was there, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. Hmm, interesting. So let's do that. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 22, and let's see what the psalmist says. In Psalm chapter 22, we're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage this morning. Here's what he says. He starts out by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember what we said where they would just say the first line of a psalm and instantly they would have the entire thing at their mental ready? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Does that ring any bells to you? Isn't that exactly what the people and the religious, isn't it exactly what the religious leaders said? Verse nine, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear at their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Interesting that on the cross... None of Jesus' bones were broken, but hanging on a cross, certainly his bones very well may have been out of joint. He says, I'm poured out like water, says David. Do you remember what happened when they shoved the spear into his side after he died? What came out? Blood and water. David continues, My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, we need to talk about this for a second, and I apologize. It's going to get a little gross, and I'm sorry. I never could understand why these soldiers who were so bent on giving Jesus such a a deplorable time during his his crucifixion, I could never understand why they seemed to suddenly be overcome with this this, um, compassion. And, oh my goodness, he's, he's thirsty. He's on the cross, but he's thirsty. Why don't we get a sponge and try and slake his thirst? And it never really made sense to me until I learned that Roman soldiers as part of their gear, as part of their kit, they all had a sponge, okay? And that sponge was very utilitarian. Um, They would use that to wipe themselves after they would go to the bathroom. They used that sponge to, I mean, they were in a pretty gruesome line of work. Um, I mean, killing people can get pretty gruesome, right? So they would use that sponge to wipe down the blood and gore and bodily fluids from their, um, their weapons and their instruments and whatnot, and they would then rinse it out, and they would use wine vinegar to sterilize that sponge. So, these people were not overcome with compassion for Jesus being thirsty on the cross. What they were doing was the equivalent of taking a used pile of toilet paper, pouring vinegar on it, and then holding that up on a stick to Jesus saying, you're thirsty, are you? Suck on this. Shame upon shame upon shame that's being heaped on Jesus. Let's continue in Psalm 22. In verse 16, it says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. And this is super interesting. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, there is a, a very interesting, text, uh, interesting textual variant here that we don't have time to talk about, but why would David say, they pierce my hands and my feet? Because it sure seems like he's predicting that Jesus would be crucified, or at least that he's talking about crucifixion. The thing that is stunning is that crucifixion was not even invented for a few hundred years until after David wrote this. It wasn't even invented what they would do for a similar effect, the Assyrians and whatnot, would, um, they would impale people. Again, this is kind of gross. I apologize. But they would like, line the roads into to cities that were, had been conquered with sharpened stakes that they would kind of drop people on. They would impale them. And the problem with that was it killed the people too fast. Which is why the Romans, doing the exact same thing, lining the roads into cities that they had conquered, that's why they developed crucifixion because it wouldn't kill people fast. It would drag out, it would stretch out the, the, the torture that was involved in being crucified. So impaling's very similar to crucifixion, they just perfected the, the, the torture of it. And yet, hundreds of years before crucifixion is even invented, David says they pierce my hands and feet. What could he be talking about if this wasn't a prophecy hundreds of years beforehand about what would happen to the Messiah. Look at verse 17. Continues, David does. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. We read that too. That also happened exactly like this. David is, is nailing hundreds of years, about 800 years beforehand, piece by piece, everything that happened to Jesus. And some people might say, well, Jesus' disciples were just trying to make this fulfilled, right? They were just trying to make this come true, so they cast lots for his garment. No, no. It was the Roman centurions who had no knowledge or interest in Psalm 22 in the slightest. They were the ones who actually made this happen. It's stunning, friends. Stunning. Let's continue. Verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The thing that you need to know about Psalm chapter 22, what we read there is... um, is written in what's called chiastic structure. Now, has, has Alan talked to you guys about chiastic structure? Is this familiar or is this not familiar? Not so much, okay. Chiastic structure is, um, it sounds complicated, it's not nearly as complicated as it actually sounds. What it, is is basically the kind of bare bones minimum of what um, the the Hebrew people thought about poetry. So their basic form of poetry was chiastic structure. Now for us, we have a basic form of poetry as well. What what is it? It's not everything that there is to poetry, but when we want someone to know they're listening to poetry, what do we do? Yeah, we rhyme. We don't just rhyme, we rhyme the last line, or the last word in a line with something else, right? As soon as you hear the last word in a line rhyming, we think, oh, that's poetry. So roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. As soon as we hear the blue and the you, we think, oh, that's poetry. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I. We hear those rhyming and we think, Immediately, this is poetry. Well, as far as I'm aware, the ancient Hebrews were not interested in rhyming the last line or the last word of their lines. What they were very interested in is this thing called chiastic structure. And here's what it is. They would thematically take the first line or the first phrase or the first stanza and they would line it up with the last one. And then the second stanza would line up with the second, and the third with the third last, and they would basically bookend these ideas in until when you get to the middle, the thing that happens in the center is either the most important thing of the entirety, or it's the turn. So something's going one direction, you get to the middle, and there's a, there's a, a sharp turn in another direction. So again, it sounds complicated. Um, it is all the way through the Old Testament, like, like you it, it's actually kind of difficult to read the Old Testament um without seeing chiastic structure in there and and, and understanding it. But what we need to know is that Psalm 22, the part that we read, is written in chiastic structure. But not just any chiastic structure, it is literary brilliance. So not only does the first thing line up with the last thing and the second thing line up with the second last thing, once you start studying it, there are chiasms within the larger chiasm that are consistent not only with themselves but also with the, the mini chiasm on the other side of the middle. Listen, this is, again, it sounds complicated, it is stunning literary brilliance on par with anything from Shakespeare or Milton or anything that we would have in English. It is stunning literary brilliance. And the reason why I bring this up is because that first phrase in verse one that Jesus quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? In the chiastic structure, do you want to know what that lines up with? It lines up with verse 24 that says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. So the whole time, I thought Jesus on the cross was telling everyone that was there and everyone subsequently that he was becoming sin on our behalf and so the Father had to turn his face from him. What he was actually saying was turn to Psalm 22 and just like sweet Caroline connects mentally with dot, 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 he was saying, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one he has not hidden his face from him. Far from saying that God had turned his back on him. For everyone with ears to hear, what he was doing was reminding them that God had actually not turned his back from him. And the really shocking thing for for the original audience of this is that the religious leaders actually turned around and went, oh, he must be calling on Elijah. And everyone who would have been reading that in the original uh, context would have been saying, what are you talking about? How could you possibly be missing this? How could you be so blind to what Jesus is so clearly saying? For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. And why do we bring this up? We bring this up because there's a really good chance that at some point in your life, you're going to walk through a set of circumstances where it's going to feel like God has forsaken you. Maybe you're walking through that season right now. It's going to feel like God has turned his face from you, God has turned his back on you. And what I have to tell you is that in that moment... When you feel like God has turned his face from you, you need to preach yourself a sermon and remember that he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. That he has not hidden his face from him. And for everyone who is in Christ, for everyone who is a Christian, that is the truth of our situation. That is the truth of where we find ourselves, that because of the cross, and by the way, the cross is the mechanism by which we can be assured of the fact that God has not turned his face from us, that God has not hidden himself from us. The cross is the mechanism that guarantees that. And the hard truth that nobody wants to tell you that no one wishes was true is that for anyone who has not believed in Jesus, for everyone who has not believed that what he did on the cross applies to them, for anyone who has not received the forgiveness that he offers freely, you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you certainly don't deserve it, all we can do is receive it as a gift. For anyone who has not received that gift, the hard truth is that God has not turned his face toward you. And it's not because God's not a loving God, He's freely offering you. He's freely offering forgiveness. For anyone who is in Christ, for anyone who believes in Jesus, for anyone who's a Christian, we can be sure, we can be certain that God has not turned our face from us, turned His face from us. Now, interestingly, where we stopped reading is not where Psalm 22 ends. Where we stopped reading is, it is where the chiasm in Psalm 22 ends, but the psalm continues, and that's actually um, pretty remarkable as well. That doesn't happen very often. Usually, what happens is the, the chiasm is the entirety of the psalm. So let's keep looking at what the rest of the psalm says. Picking up in verse 25, David writes, he says, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And by the way, we stopped reading in Matthew, but if you read just a little bit further from where we left off, what we'll find is that one of the Roman centurions actually says, do you remember what he says? He goes, surely this man was the son of God. And that's actually the, the initial fulfillment of what we see right here in verse 28, that, that he rules over the nations. Okay, look at verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. We'll invite the band to come back up as we just kind of conclude our our thoughts here this morning. This is so strange, what we read, because just a few lines ago, what we saw was the psalmist saying that not only did he feel abandoned by the Lord, And what we see now is that not only is he not abandoned, not only has the Lord not turned his face from him, but also, stunningly, the Lord is using his suffering in order to glorify his own name. The Lord is using his suffering for a purpose, All nations will bow down before him. Dominion belongs to him. Posterity will serve him. A people yet unborn will proclaim his righteousness. He has done it. You know what the crazy thing is? When you render Hebrew to Aramaic that Jesus was speaking on the cross, you could actually render he has done it as it is finished. Everything changes because of the cross. Everything changes because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The suffering of Jesus was not God's plan B. And your suffering is not either. I'm not going to promise you, I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that God is going to fix everything in this world the way that you want. That's not the promise. You know what the promise is? The promise is, in this world you will have, do you remember what Jesus said? What was it? Trouble. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, he's overcome the world. The promise is not that it's going to go easy for us now. The promise is that our suffering will have purpose. Our suffering will have meaning now. And the promise is that one day, Jesus is going to come back. We're going to see him, and in that day, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to dry every tear, and he's going to heal every hurt. That day, all will be well. And until then, the suffering of his people has meaning, and they are not, we are not left alone. So until then, because dominion belongs to the Lord, because he rules over the nations, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and because that resurrection is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing the victory of Jesus over our adversaries of Satan and sin and death, because of all that, let's rejoice in him. Because of all that, let's remember that it is finished, that he has done it. Let's go out and live like that's true. You're loved.